this morning is such a wonderful time to end our time in Acts as we put it to a close. It's chapter 28 to present, and it's so apropos that we would do a baptism on this very time, because it speaks to exactly what, what Paul was trying to proclaim. Have you ever thought about, so what now? You know, we look at what the mission of the church, the whole point of going through Acts is to see what we were supposed to be doing. What are we supposed to be doing? How are we supposed to do it? And, and are we doing those things? And evaluating ourselves. And um, so that's what we want to do is we want to look at just five main things that we can kind of surmise uh, the book of Acts. And then we want to look at some lessons from Paul's and imprisonment and we will go through kind of quickly and so um, if we don't uh, touch on every verse don't worry that's great bible study through the week and I encourage you to do that Uh, I usually put more verses than we need and that's by design so that way you can see the context speaking through the entire scripture and know that I'm not just taking one verse out of context and so I encourage you to, to get involved and study it through the week. Let's pray and then dive right on into these five conclusions and acts. Lord, so thankful just for hearing both Bethany's testimony, hearing Raul's testimony, and we could all get up here and we could proclaim you, Lord. I just, that is our desire. And Lord, I pray that we would see how great that is that the more we proclaim you, the more, that, the more glory you receive, and the more glory you receive, the more uh, we advance the kingdom of God. Because the kingdom, Lord, your kingdom is about you. And so, Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to proclaim you. And I just, I just thank you for that wonderful testimony. And I just pray that we truly heard Christ and all that you've done for us in it. And so, Lord, and we just thank you so much for how you have been pivotal in leading us all. And, Lord, may we turn to you in this time as we read your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Of course, Acts has been quite crazy. Um, Because of, as I was going through Bethany's testimony, I decided not to read the whole passage because I wanted her to have time just to focus on her testimony um, but in Acts, uh, we see Paul's life, uh, you know, it starts with Peter in the beginning of the apostles in the very beginning, and then it turns to, to Paul, and we've been talking about Paul a lot. In 2 Corinthians 11, we see that Paul says, you know, I've been shipwrecked, I've been beaten, I've been thrown down, I've been sick, I've been hungry, I've been, and he shares all these things that has happened to him. But the one thing he boasts in is what even makes him look the weakest, and that is he boasts in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that, and that, was, and that was the neat thing, is before I even knew what Bethany chose for her songs, uh, that was the scripture that I had, was that we need to boast in Christ. And that was Paul's point. His whole life, the whole point when he was leading the church and giving direction to the church and says, here you go, church, here it is. And it's about boasting in Christ. May you boast in him and him alone. And so as we think about 
all of what that encompasses, we want to learn from not only the life of Paul and in his life, but we want to look at the whole book of Acts and how it might encourage us to, to, to launch forward as a church body in the years to come. So would you pray with me again and just ask God to bless the reading of his word. Lord, we just pray that your word would be honored this morning. Lift our hearts, lift our eyes. Get it away from the circumstances of the day, our hearts away from the troubles. And Lord, may we see your presence in your word and realize what you are teaching us today and just empower us to hear it. The power through the power of the Holy Spirit, Lord, may we be blessed in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul's been in prison. He finally makes it to Rome. We won't read the whole first part of chapter 28, but he finally gets there. All the problems, all the trials, all the tribulation, all the stuff, and he gets there. And look what he does. If you're in Acts 28, turn to verse 23, and listen as we read through the end of the chapter, and just look at this wonderful opportunity Paul takes to present Christ. And it says, and when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him, that is the Jews, at the lodging in greater numbers. From morning all till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom, uh, testifying to the kingdom of God, and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. So he used the whole Old Testament basically to explain to them who Jesus was. Verse 24, and some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved and disagreed among themselves. They departed after Paul had made one statement. This is a doozy of a statement to present to people you're trying to share the gospel to. And he said this to them, his Jewish audience. He said, the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers, through Isaiah the prophet, he quotes Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 through 10. And he says, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and their eyes can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. He lived there for two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God, and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. That's quite a message. Can you imagine telling a bunch of people that they can't see, they can't hear, you'll never understand, your hearts are closed to what God has for you as a people? And then to say, and I'm sending this gospel to another group of people and they will listen. Right? That is not what you want to hear as a group of people, especially about God and about how he will save you. Undoubtedly, this offended some, 
They didn't want to hear that. They didn't want to hear the truth. They didn't want to hear the prophecy came true in their life. Some believed and some said, we believe. And the church continued on, continued on through many different cities and around and eventually around the world, and it continues to go. What's amazing is the gospel has gone completely around the world, and where some of the very first missionaries went from, now the gospel is going back there. It's gone full circle in many ways. And as we come to these 20 whole eight chapters, and Paul proclaims the gospel, With the last two years, he's proclaiming the gospel. He's sharing his faith. He's telling everybody who Christ is. He's winning slaves to Christ. He's winning the the soldiers to Christ. He's winning people in the Roman government to Christ. And then eventually he gets his head chopped off for the message of the gospel. He gets blamed, right, for a lot of things, except for sharing the gospel, (laughs) But look at these, these five things that I want you to see this morning as we conclude. And, whoop, I'm sorry. There we go. <laughs> I want you to see the providential rule of Christ. The providential rule. Providence is this, that God is in control of all the details in the physical universe. God is in control, and along with that control is Christ's rule. The providential rule of Christ. Luke starts this gospel with the rule of Christ. The authority of Christ. And in fact, in Matthew 28, 18, it says, uh, he said to the apostles that all authority was given to me. Now go make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's what we did this morning. As Bethany proclaimed that she is a disciple of Christ. And thus she was baptized. Colossians 1.16 says, For by him, all things were created. Did you get that? That's by him. It's talking about Christ. By him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, through thrones, and uh, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Christ is providentially in control of all things. We see that all the way through the book of Acts. It didn't matter. No matter what happened, the gospel went forth. The church grew. It didn't matter what kind of persecution they faced. The rule of Christ succeeded. The providential rule of Christ over all things sustains us. It gives us great hope to see that no matter what's going on around us, God is still and will always be in control. Satan might delay things, and he might be like, "Woohoo! I've sure got them in a pickle, right? I happen to like pickles, so that's okay. But that's beside the point. But the thing is, is he, that Satan's always excited when he delays somebody, but it doesn't matter because God is always going to providentially rule over all things. And that's going to be quite a shock to some People, when Christ returns and we go home, we'll live with him for eternity. There are going to be people that are not going to know what hit them. Think about this. If Christ, who is our head, rules all things, then all is well. 
We can sing that song, It is well with my soul. No matter how things may appear for the moment, our Savior is always accomplishing His will. Isn't that a blessing? That's a joy. Along with, we see all through the book of Acts, the providential rule of Christ. Um, Well, actually, I'm still not for some reason. There you go. The providential rule of Christ. Then, ah, I haven't used this for a while. I'm out of, you know, Rob would be laughing right now. I always tease him. But we see the mission of God's church in the world. What is our mission? What does God want us to do? And that's what we see all through the book of Acts. And in fact, we can narrow it down really succinctly to several different things. And you see in Acts chapter 1, verse 18, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. When you get saved and the Holy Spirit enters your life, and that happens at salvation, we have the the, the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit given to us to save us, to unify us. I mean, think about how supernatural that is. God uses his own spirit to unify us with himself. That is amazing to think because God is holy and I am not. That is a supernatural act of unity by the blood of Christ when he died on the cross for our sins. But he says, when you have been received the Holy Spirit, and he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the other utter ends of the earth. We see this very mission to the church given and that you'll be my witnesses. In fact, if you go a few verses further in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. Did you notice that? They they were to be witnesses and and they devoted themselves to God's teaching to the fellowship. They lived life together. That's what it means when it says they had fellowship and they br- even to the breaking of bread and praying together. They lived life together. So simply put, here's the mission of the church. is the fact that they were to be witnesses and they were supposed to focus on God's teaching and live life together. We tend to miss that live life together part and we tend to hide from being a witness but surely we love to break bread together, right? If anything that Baptists do well, that's it. We break a lot of bread, right? We eat well, right? That's why I'm raising pigs for the bacon, (laughs) not for the smell, (laughs) right? Nobody told me they smelled. (laughs) They did. I'm not that naive. But here's the thing. This is the emphasis. In fact, that's what Jesus said. Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority, uh, verse 18, he says, All authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. It's all been given to me. That's the providential rule of Christ. And he says, Go therefore and make disciples. Going is the energy. Making is the process by which evangelism takes the witnessing part. And he says, then baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. That teaching part. You're supposed to, what Jesus just described was life on life, being a witness, and then teaching that person that accepts Christ to know how to live with Christ. 
And that's exactly what he said next. In fact, if you go to Acts chapter 20, verses 20 through 27, Paul says the same thing to the church. He said that he pulled all the elders of the Ephesian church together and he said, look, I haven't, I have shared everything that I needed to teach in God's word. I have not shied away from any counsel of God. I've taught you everything. Even the things that you don't like, right? He taught everything. In fact, and then I was a witness to the glory of the gospel. I was a witness of Christ. It's amazing as we look at those things. It's not the mission of God's church to entertain the world. It's to be a witness to the world. It's not not our job to educate the world. We're to be a witness. Our job is not to heal the world. Because one day God's going to destroy the world and reunite us with him. It's not our job to heal the world. It's not our job to reform the world. We We have a hard enough time doing that in church and in family life. You know, we, you know, a little rod of correction, a little reformation on the seed of knowledge. I heard somebody said, uh, Grandma always said that uh, uh, spanking the bottom was just uh, helping push the brains back up where they belong. <laughs> I heard that this weekend somewhere. I thought it was pretty cool. I was like, I never heard that one, right? But our job is not to reform. It's not our job to go out and spank the world and reform it. It's not our job to govern the world. Our singular mission from Christ is to preach the gospel to the world. That's the third thing we see in this, is is that we see the offense of the cross. We, We have, I know I've shared this before, but the cross is the singular most offensive way to die known to man. You're stripped, you're beaten, you're publicly humiliated, and then you're tortured to death. Literally, you stop fighting for your life and you die. That's what the cross did. It was the worst thing. And we're preaching the cross of Christ, the cross that killed Christ. It's offensive. Learning that we are sinners in the hands of an angry God is offensive. But it helps us to realize we need a Savior. God knew what he was doing. I like what it says, and Bethany was reading my message this morning, but in 1 Corinthians 1, she quoted this in, in, in verses 18 through 24. Listen to what God says about the cross of Christ. It is offensive. It's hard to swallow, but it leads us to life. But this is how the world views, views the gospel that includes the cross. It says in verse 18, for the word of the cross is folly for those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It was the very power in which God is saving us. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of the age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. 
For Jews demand a sign, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ, Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jew and Greek, Christ, that is the power of God and the wisdom of God. When we preach the gospel, when we talk about the cross of Christ, and we talk about dying, Christ died on the cross for our sins to pay for our sins, and that we owe a debt that we could never pay. There's none of us that are righteous, no, not one. We need Christ and that it was him dying on the cross that saved us. And when people look at us in a very strange way, and they say, well, is that it? You just have to confess our sin and, and repent and believe in that? And they say, that, it can't be that. It ha- there has to be something more than that. You know, we should expect to be ridiculed. We should expect to be persecuted. That's what happened in the book of Acts. Everywhere you went, in the, in the, wherever the gospel went, they were persecuted. Wherever the cross was applied, they were persecuted. And here's the thing that I want us to think about as we think about that conclusion as we look at the book of Acts. The world's reaction to the gospel, the world's reaction to the cross, doesn't mean it's wrong. I'm talking about the cross and the gospel. It doesn't mean that you present it wrong or that we need to change the message. A lot of times we say, oh, that offends people, so we're going to stop talking about the cross, or that offends people, we're not going to talk about our sin, or that offends people, and we just basically strip the gospel void of all its power. While the world stands... And Satan stands for a short time compared to Christ, reign for eternity. The offense of the cross will never cease. It will always be offensive. It should never shock, stop shocking us. That goes to the fourth thing is, is that the, the vital ministry of the Holy Spirit, we saw it in Acts 1.8, Acts 2 verse 4, and Acts 2 verses 42, and chapter 10 and chapter 19 and and so on. In fact, so much so that you could actually, one of the more apropos chapter, uh, not chapters, but title of the book of Acts is the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Everywhere you went, the Holy Spirit was empowering the church. The Holy Spirit is so vital. We can't deny the Holy Spirit. We can't say that I'm going to live for myself I don't need the Lord. We need to rely on the Lord. We need to live in his grace. Let us ever seek his gracious wisdom that is found as we worship him, as we give the Holy Spirit control of our life and stop trying to control it. May may the Holy Spirit motivate you, guide you, help you to just fall more in love with Christ. Because that's what he'll do. In fact, in Ephesians chapter, uh, chapter 3, Paul prays that the Ephesians church will be active through the power of the Holy Spirit, that it will be the very motor that empowers them to do the works of God. If we try to live without the power of the Holy Spirit, we basically are trying to be a race car with no engine. Uh, that's, that's, 
Can you imagine having a race car in Alabama with no engine? They would just shake their head, right? Well, that's what, if we're trying to live based on our power and our strength, that's just it. We're shaking our heads. It's like, what are we doing? We can't do that. We can't rely on our good deeds. We have to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit through the work of Christ in our life. When things are bad, when things are hard, when things are hindered in your life, God is faithful. His Spirit is faithful. It's His Spirit that gives encouragement. It's His, it's, it's his Spirit that gives you the ability to live within your fear to do the things that God asks you to do. He never intended for you to live without that power. When he's asking you to do something, you're like, I don't think I can do it. You can because of the power of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean that it's easy. That's far from it. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying life's easy. I'm not saying it's going to be hard. Look at Paul's life. How do you think he survived? They thought he was dead. They threw him out, right? Came back too. Some say he was just in a coma. Some say he was dead and that God rose him again. Uh, we don't know, but they thought he was dead. What did he do? He got back up, went right back into the city, and preached Christ. It takes a mighty work of the Holy Spirit to do that. When Paul's boasting, he didn't boast in all of his abilities. He boasted in Christ. That's the last thing we see here is the immutability of God's purpose. Immutability is this big word, but it's a very appropriate word because there's no other word like it. You say, well, that's just a theological word. That's right, because theology is the study of God. And that's a word that defines who God is, and I'm going to help you with it. That's my job, is to help us understand these things. And, and that's okay, and it's not a word we use all the time anymore. But it is very important. We can't just change the word because there's no other word like it. Other people have tried, and in doing so, they've created some weird doctrines that are not in Scripture. So I'm going to stick with the word, immutability of God. We see the immutability of God's purpose. Humility is this. It means that God never changes any of his attributes. There is nothing down to every little aspect that you can think of of God that will never, ever, ever change. How many of you would like your concrete slab at home to never change? We live in, I just, I've just decided we live in a county that's built on liquefaction. Everything moves. I have watched the posts that I've put in and leveled raise two inches over this year. It's that underground river flowing to the ocean, at, at my house anyway. I, I would love, wouldn't you love if something never changed once you Got it. Once it was correct, perfect, wouldn't you like it to never change? That never happens. In fact, in my house, you can race cars in my kids' room. Put the car here, and it'll roll the other end of the room. Now, the foundation's level at the bottom, but the house isn't level. I actually love it. I think it's awesome. My kids do, too. But here's the thing. God never changes. Not one iota. His word never changes. Not one iota. Iota is a is a term for a little symbol 
in God's word. That iota, by the way, can change the whole meaning of a word. He cannot grow, evolve, improve because he is already perfect. He, there is no other power besides him. He cannot diminish, uh, deteriorate, regress because he would no longer be God. He would no longer be who he is. I remember one day I saw the biggest body I've ever seen in my life. And then I saw the, 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 the twigs of the tree move. And I said, that's a deer. I shot that deer. I thought I had just shot the biggest buck ever. And I got down there, and to my chagrin, that buck, it was a three-point buck. And I was like, only three points? But the antlers were smaller than my pinky. It's what we call a regress. It had regressed. It had begun to change. It began to diminish, just like me in my back. <laughs> Every day, it's like, oh, my goodness. It helps me sympathize with many of you. But here's the thing, is, is God doesn't do that. He doesn't change. He doesn't regress. He is exactly who he says he is. The foundation of God stands sure. That is such a blessing. What we build our life on does not change. I don't know why in the world we chose this verse other than it sounded great because I viewed my wife as my gift. But our wedding verse was James 1.17. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above. But then the best part of that verse is that he, there is no variation. There is no shadow of change in God. You know how when the sun changes, your shadow changes? Depending on the sun, you've lost weight or gained weight. Well, that doesn't happen with God. He doesn't have a shadow. He is God. It doesn't change. It doesn't matter what the circumstances are in your life. God is still the same. It doesn't matter how bad the world is. God is still the same. That's what we see in the book of Acts. His message never changed. God never changed. In fact, everything that he said in the Old Testament comes true in the New Testament. I am a Christian not because of the New Testament, but because of what God promised in the Old Testament. That's a great preaching session all of its own. I love what 1 Samuel 15, 29 says. Declares that God is not man that he should change his mind. I mean, think about it. We change our minds all the time. I, if you were to look at my notes, I've scratched things out. I've rewritten it. And I've, I mean, I change my mind all the time. God does not change. That's such a blessing. I hope you see that. That was, I think, as we enter into this phase of the lessons of Paul's imprisonment is this. Learn to trust God's providence, that God is in control. God is, because he doesn't ever change, he's in control. We should learn what we see in Paul's life. That he trusted God's providence. When God said something was going to happen, when he said, Paul, you'll make it to Rome, it sure didn't look like it. If you read the book of Acts, it looks like Paul should have ended his life a lot earlier. If I don't know about you, but many of us would give up if we were Paul in the book of Acts. He was prison in Caesarea for a couple years. Then he goes to Rome and he's in prison for a couple years. Then he gets let out and then he goes back to prison. I mean, I think he's, 
he spent most of his time writing the epistles in prison. He didn't waste any time. He trusted in the Lord. That's why in James 4, 13, God says this to us. He says, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and we'll spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. You know what I'm talking about? You know what God's talking about here? He just compared your life to a mist. You know, when you go outside, when it actually does get cold here and you breathe in the mist, you see that fog that comes out of your mouth and then it disappears because your breath finally warms, you know, not warms up, I'm sorry. It finally cools down, right? And it disappears. That's what he's saying. Your life is just like a vapor, a vapor of mist. Instead, you have to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. The idea is, is do you trust in God's providence? And when you do that, you learn to trust in what God gives you. If you learn to trust that God is in control, you begin to learn what God... Paul didn't question whether he got beat up. God didn't question whether he had to to go to jail. He didn't question... All that mattered was that God wanted him to be a witness. Proclaim the gospel. Proclaim my message. And you will do it in Rome. Paul says, okay. You know, God is starting to get a little hard. You know, that last beating I took, that was just a little much. He didn't say that. He said, hey, let's do it all over again. Why? Because he he writes why in Philippians 4.19. And my God, listen to this, this is Paul speaking while in prison. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Do you believe that? That's a lesson we all need to learn because of Paul's imprisonment. My God will supply every need. Do you believe it? The thing is, is do you believe it when you're stuck in the mud? Right? Do you believe it when you go to hook up a trailer and you end up on the floor because you're, you end up on the ground and you can't move? Right? And then you have to have the church secretary and your son get you back into the truck. <laughs> it's like, do you trust the Lord and his providence and what he's going to give you? It's like, man, what are you doing, Lord? You know, I was going to go out and cut some wood. Now I'm laying on the floor. Every once in a while, my back decides to take over and say, you're not going to do whatever you want to do. You're going to lay on the floor. I have one of those backs. It just takes over sometimes. I think it's God really telling me to slow down. But, that's, you know, in my prayers, God and I joke about that all the time. And I have to say, you know, I can't do this today, God, but I trust you. You'll do it. You'll do whatever you want to do, and it doesn't matter what I wanted to do. So, Lord, help me see what you want to do. (laughs) Right? Because it's hard sometimes. But do you trust that God's going to supply all of your needs? Because he will. I love 2 Corinthians 9, 8. It says, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. He just told you that he will provide 
everything that is sufficient for every good work that he wants you to do. Do you believe it? That's what empowered Paul, especially when he was in prison. And the third and the last thing is this. Learn that all who honor God will be honored by God. When we honor God and we say, yes, I trust you, God releases his joy. By the way, did you know you cannot manufacture joy? You don't produce it. When we obey God, when we trust God, we show God we trust him, he releases that benefit to you. That peace of God that surpasses all understanding that can guard your heart, sorry, your heart and your mind through Christ Jesus. That's joy. I want you to see something, and you may have to underline it to see it, to learn that all who honor God, God honors. We see it all the way through Scripture. But look at Proverbs chapter 3. I'll give you a second to turn there, because if you don't underline it, you may not see it. Many times in, in the Hebrew language, they write in poetic form, and in, in, uh, they write... In, in opposites, and they, you know, there's a cause and effect, or there's this, these opposites, and there's always these things. And the problem is when we read Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, we quote it all the time, but we don't read the entire context, and so we miss the poetry that's there, and we miss the message. In Proverbs chapter 3, in 5 through 22, he says this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, That's honoring God. Do not lean on your own understanding. There's the opposite. Here's what God does. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will. There's no might. There's no happenstance. There's a will. This is a promise. He will make straight your paths. There's a condition. Trust the Lord, acknowledge him, not your own understanding. Don't acknowledge yourself, your emotions, circumstances, but you acknowledge him. He will straighten out your path. By the way, that's dealing with your direction and perseverance. You can underline that. That's when you honor God, he helps you in your knowing what direction to go. And he helps you get there and persevere. I don't know about you, but how would you like to run laps around your problems? Every lap gets worse. I ran track, I know. I hated that when we had to run like 20, 30 laps. But here's the thing. God says, no, I was a sprinter. I want to just run straight. And that's what God says if you honor him. Look at verse 7. It says, he continues, and he says, be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord, right? So the opposite of being wise in your own eyes is fear the Lord. That's honor, respect, not just being scared of, and turn away from evil. Look at verse 8. Look at what happens. It will, I like that, will, be healing to your flesh and refreshments to your bones. That's health. So not only, so if you honor God, he will deal with the direction in your life. He will deal with the perseverance, being able to, to sprint through the issues, get through it, to persevere, and he will deal with your health. Verse 8, that's your health. Look at verse 9. Honor the Lord with your wealth and the first fruits of all your produce. 
then your barns will be filled with plenty. Did you notice the will part again? You see a common thread here? Honor the Lord with your possessions, and he and then your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will be bursting with wine. If you honor God, he'll take care of your material needs. God will do that. Verse 11, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves. And as a father, the son in whom he delights. You honor the Lord, he's going to discipline you. Why? This one's a little tricky. Because he loves you. The testimony of Bethany. God loves you. It means he's going to train you because he loves you. But look at the last verse of 12. And as a father, the, the son in whom he delights. That's also a promise. In the original language, it's there. It's not in the English part. But he says, in whom he delights. When we honor the Lord, he delights in you. That's full acceptance. And many of us here live our whole lives wanting to be accepted. When we honor God, he gives us that emotional acceptance. So as we close, let me ask you a question. Well, actually, let me ask you three. Pastor's prerogative. (laughs) Are you honoring God? Are you honoring God with your life, with your possessions? with whatever needs are in your life? Or are your needs and the circumstances greater than God? Are you submitting to his word? That's what Paul did. Are you thankful like Paul was? Are you patient in your circumstances? Where is your allegiance and where is your trust? Are you aligning yourself with Christ Or are you aligning yourself more with the world? That'll determine who you trust. Who do you trust? I pray and hope that your trust is in Christ because did you see all that he provides for you when you trust him, when you obey him, when you believe in him? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word that As we come to close in the book of Acts, there are so many amazing things that you did. But Lord, it really speaks to your faithfulness. That you will do exactly what you say. You will never fail. You never give up. Lord, you love us. Lord, I pray right now that there are some of us who have put our faith and trust in you, but... Lord, the world has began to creep in and the circumstances have distracted us from remembering who we did put our faith and trust in. And we're struggling. We feel like we're drowning. We're depressed. We're fearful. We're sad. Lord, all it takes is simply to not believe in our emotions and our feelings and our understanding of things, but to simply to trust in the Lord with all our heart. Lean not under our own understanding and all our ways acknowledge you and you will begin to make our path straight again. And Lord, if that, whoever that is, Lord, if they need you this morning, they've heard this message, 
I pray, Lord, that they learn from Paul's life and from all that we saw in Acts this morning as we wrap it up, and they would hear the Holy Spirit in their heart saying, Lord, I need to renew my trust in you and do it daily. Lord, I pray that they would do that today. As we pray and as we sing, that they would speak from their heart to you. But ultimately, Lord, the message that we're called to is to be your witness, that you died for our sins, that we're not perfect, that we will never be perfect, we can never be good enough. There is nothing we will ever do to earn your favor. Praise the Lord, we don't have to earn your favor because it would never happen. So you sent your son to die on the cross for our sins. Christ, Jesus, you took all of our sins to make the way. You are the way, the truth, and the life. It is based on your life that we now can have life with God. We can have a relationship. We can be brought back under a great relationship with the Father and be saved from our sin. So Lord, I pray if no one here is, if someone's here has never confessed you and and said, Lord, yes, I'm a sinner. I need to be saved from my sin. That they would cry out from their heart and they would put their faith and trust in you this morning. And as they call upon you, Lord, that you would save them through the power of your spirit. Change them. Make them new. Change who they are. Give them the new life that you died for us for. That life where we now have a sure footing, a relationship that never changes, that is based on you, a relationship with our Father in heaven. Lord, would they do that this morning, I pray. Prick their heart. Help them to realize today is the day of salvation. Don't wait. Do it right now as we close and as we pray and as we sing. In Jesus' name.